Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. It is July 8th, 2021. We have a jam-packed episode. We're going to talk about our takeaways from the year so far as we do enter Q3 now. We've passed that halfway mark in July here. We're going to talk about things like optionality and CPP and potentially decision paralysis later this episode. Simon, what's going on? How are you feeling? Because the Stanley Cup playoff run that deserves a lot of credit has come to an end last night. Feeling uh, disappointed, but uh, happy with the run. It was a, a fun ride. Definitely unexpected. Didn't even think they would get through uh, Toronto on the first round. So anything beyond that was great. And yeah, they. I'm sure they're disappointed too, but they they should be proud. Oh, they should. It was a it was a hell of a run. They should be very proud. And uh, they gave they gave their fans some some hockey to watch, which uh, Leafs fans can't say the same thing. All right, let's talk about takeaways. I can't believe it's already July 8th. It feels like so much, yet so much, so little has happened so far this year. I don't know how to eloquently put that into words, but that's how I'm feeling right now. And we we, we talked about some of the things that we've been surprised about, um, some things we didn't see coming. Um, so let's get right into that. I'm going to kick this off with... My one takeaway of the year so far, and that IPO, the IPO market is red hot. There have been, as of yesterday, July 7th, 589 IPOs on the US stock market. Um, this time last year, the IPO market, there have been 102 listings in the US. So it's a. I'm kind of coupling this with another takeaway, and that in this hot IPO market, it is a good time to be an investment bank. Let's be honest. Um, and I'm tying this into my second takeaway, which is Wall Street banks are reporting outrageously good numbers. They're doubling their dividends. You can just see how well the big banks, both in Canada and the U.S., have performed financially during the pandemic and through the recovery. I find that very surprising, um, especially because the market kind of discounted them so hot out of the gate because they are so sensitive to the macro environment. And we've seen banks here in Canada and in the U.S. record some pretty stellar numbers. Um, and now they're just, you know, doubling the dividend, um, which is pretty insane and seeing some good, good, good growth. And I'm, I'm wondering in, in the second half of this year that all of a sudden big banks become kind of in favor from that growth at a reasonable price crowd, because it, it seems to me like that, that could be very feasible. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. Banks have been doing quite well, probably surprisingly well, especially given the the low interest rates and IPOs have been through the roof. And that expands to SPACs, right? We've talked about that a few episodes back. I think it was at the time around 400 SPACs that were looking for acquisitions. And if you're not uh, sure what a SPAC is, a special acquisition purpose company, Look, uh, look back at our past episodes. I kind of break them down how they actually work and the uh, the inner workings of them. But it just kind of adds on to what you said about IPO. There's a lot of movement in that space. There sure is. So my first takeaway. Um, so we've talked about uh, oil before. Um, so I did a bit of research before the podcast. I wanted to see how well oil has performed since uh, the beginning of the year. I knew it performed pretty well. So it's actually outperforming the S&P 500. Um, just for context, West Texas Intermediate went from $50 a barrel to $70 plus a barrel. Um, the Western Canada Select Group has gone from $32 a barrel to above $60 a barrel. And please keep in mind that was uh, I did my notes a couple days ago, so it's very possible it moved a little bit since then. This should benefit companies in Canada like Suncor, which is up 35 plus percent uh, year to date. Canovis, Synovis, I always mess up that name. Synovis. Synovis. Uh, they're up 55 plus percent year to date as well. Obviously, they made a big acquisition last year with Husky Energy. And Imperial Oil is up 60 percent plus year to date. So. We've talked about oil. We don't really invest in that ourselves um, for different reasons, but we've said it before a few times where it seemed like there was a lot of value in oil, and I don't think it's going to be going away anytime soon. I think very long term, several decades out, it's going to be trending down. But for now, for people interested in that sector, um, it's definitely performed quite well, and there might still be some upside there as well. The oil co's have produced some pretty solid resort results this year. Um, and it's that mix of the rising oil price, improving unit economics, and they were just so cheap. So you just needed some catalyst, like a recovery, like an oil price increase on something that's so beaten up that the market has just really had no interest in for quite some time. And you get some pretty solid performance across the board. So not surprising uh, one bit. And that does lead into my takeaway for the beginning of this year, which is commodity prices and this this commodity boom. Um, Commodity prices have been just absolutely wild. They've been affecting supply chains across the board uh, and you have this perfect storm type of scenario. You're being disrupted by shortages across various things like semiconductors to begin with. And you have this inflationary environment. So is it inflationary? Yeah, sure. I think so. Is it uh, a strong demand as we recover out of a pandemic? Yes, definitely. So it's this perfect storm of rising prices inflationary environment and the the entire economy and almost every asset really rising across the board. And I think this is the just start of a trend, really. Uh, now, before I get into some, some DMs on Twitter that are going to be like, Braden, I thought you don't invest in commodities. 
Uh, look how well my Suncor Energy stock has done. <laughs> um, I thought you said they're bad investments. I know it's coming. I know, I know these DMs are coming. Now, you might be right, but how on earth do you predict commodity prices reliably? Now, maybe in the short term, these kind of predictions pay off. But Simon and I here are trying to execute a strategy that works for decades that is profitable and repeatable. The key word there is repeatable. Predicting commodity prices is not repeatable. If you found a way to do it repeatably, let me know. That's a DM I'll, I'll accept. I'll field that one because we can become billionaires together. So in this same light, I'm actually surprised that both Bitcoin and gold have basically flatlined performance year to day. Uh, gold actually is about down about $1,000 an ounce, which I find surprising. And you know, gold and Bitcoin have had very different paths through the years as Bitcoin's crazy volatile as to be expected. It at like 77,000 Canadian, it sits around 42,000 Canadian. It just seems like the assets you'd expect to be on fire in this environment. So I'm tacking that on as kind of a, a 2.1 to surprising um, commodities and assets. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point for commodities and people can probably relate to have been trying to do renovations or building anything with wood right now. It's extremely expensive. Um, we're doing our fence at our, our place in Ottawa and we decided to go with a chain link fence because it was just crazy uh, to go with the wood fence. But it's just to show, yeah, co commodities in general has done have done quite well. It'll be interesting whether this keeps going or it's just uh, kind of transitory like uh, the fed likes to say <laughs> i laugh when i hear that word these days yeah same for me um so my second one it's a bit longer point and i know you'll probably have some um you'll want to chime in a little bit here so there's been a lot of news this week about china and its crackdown on big big tech more specifically dd which is the ride sharing company i'll get back to dd in a second so china's been intervening more and more into companies that it sees that's Mon monopolistic and not in line with government the new rules are fast emerging and china's wealthiest tycoons they don't publicly they have to not publicly criticize the party they have to keep a low profile they have to give workers a fair shake and make state priorities your priorities as a business owner in china so that's really important and that's where it really diverges from western world the u.s canada so those are things to really keep in in mind when you're investing in china and i'll give a bit more examples of this so dd like i mentioned the ride sharing company which is the uber of china if you'd like they have close to half a billion uh subscribers um they Earlier this week, their stock plunged in pre-market trading after Chinese regulators ordered the removal of the company's platform from app stores days after a 4.4 billion U.S. initial public offering. Shares of the U.S. of the China-based tech firm fell as much as 30% on the news to 10.90 a share. They wiped out about 22 billion in market value, and they actually traded below the $14 IPO price. The Cyberspace Administration of China barred new users from DD's app, so new users cannot sign up, citing security risks and tightening its grip on sensitive online data. 
Didi, which is uh, has an American depository receipt, uh, began trading on New York on June 30th, and they said that the move may have an adverse impact on its revenues in China. So I think that's a bit of an understatement right there. And there's I've saw I've seen quite a few articles saying that Didi actually knew this was coming, and they rushed to do their IPO because they wanted to allow their VC investor to take profits off the table. So take that as you may right there. Some other examples of what's been happening in China in the past couple of years. Everyone's heard of the anti-IPO in Jack Ma. If you haven't, the brief of that is Jack Ma went missing for a couple of months when he criticized the Chinese government in October 2020. A few days after that, the anti-IPO, so the financial arm of uh, Alibaba, um, Got, the IPO got canceled, and Jack Ma, like I said, wasn't heard or seen for several months. In addition to that, the digital yuan, which is a CBDC, a CBDC is a central bank digital currency, is currently being tested in China, has been testing it for several months now. It's expected that it will allow Chinese government to monitor even more closely the financial activities of its citizen. It will also. It could also pose a competition to some of the uh, big fintechs in China, like Alipay and WeChat, which currently account for about 98% of the mobile payment in China. It's also possible that they will integrate the digital yuan to those platforms. So that's something to keep an eye on. Another example of uh, China crackdown recently was Meituan, their large online shopping platform. Um, there's been several different municipality regulators in China that have fined Meituan so far this year, and it might be a sign for bigger intervention from the Chinese government to, in the near future. Even Apple was eventually forced into having their data for their application and what people correspond on their iPhones and so on, iCloud stored in China and easily accessible by the Chinese government. Um, it's a bit opaque what happened here, but uh, all signs point to Google basically agreeing to um, do what the Chinese government wanted over Apple, there. Apple, you mean, right? Yeah, Apple. Yeah. No, you said you said Google. Oh, Just sorry. Confirm. Yeah, Google's not. Uh, I think uh, several years ago they took the, the decision not to be in China for similar reasons, I guess. And uh, they Apple has also been removing apps on their app store as required by the Chinese government. Um, so we're really seeing a trend here with the Chinese government. And another thing recently that came out is uh, recent regulation in China forced about 90% of Bitcoin mining operation to shut down. Um, so not to go into detail about the, uh, the impacts on Bitcoin and so on. Just It's just another example of the control that the Chinese government really wants to have. Um, and forcing companies to basically being in line with state priorities like i mentioned earlier and this has really been emerging since xi jinping has shown uh, has come into power in 2012 so he's really shown his desire for the chinese government to stay in control even more than its uh its predecessor and if you research this a bit more you'll see other example not necessarily in fintech but in other industries in china dating back to 2015 2016 and uh you know in the past six seven years examples like that where china's really kind of uh puts an imprint on the different businesses and making sure they fall in line with the government so whether you see all of this as a 
an op opportunity to invest in Chinese companies or big tech in China. That's up to you to decide. One of the things I would recommend people think about is that they may look very good value compared to U.S. big tech. But keep in mind that there is a discount because of all these risks with doing business in China. And what you really have to ask yourself is, will the multiple expansion really happen in the future or not? Or will this always be a factor in terms of the big Chinese companies, especially the tech companies? There's a big discount applied to them, and that's just the way it is. It will continue in the future, and you should not necessarily be comparing them to their U.S. counterparts. I believe that to be a good take. Um, and I guess, I guess the way that I'm looking at this is these risks exist. You need to be aware of them. When you invest in Chinese companies, you have to realize that regulation, the way they look at the world is very different. And the people in China may be great, but the way that they do business and the way that the CCP controls a lot of what goes on around there is something that you need to be aware of and that is a risk that is out there. Now, on the contrary, if I'm right, and and when I say if I'm right, is that I mean, I think right now I am comfortable with the risks that exist out there in investing in a company like Tencent. The ADR delisting is a factor. You know, their crackdown on big tech is it is if that narrative I actually don't b believe to be true because they go out of their way to make Tencent more monopolistic for, for better or for worse. I don't know if they have good or bad intentions around that, but I'm telling you, they go out of their way to make Tencent and WeChat monopolistic as hell. Maybe it's just one data set for them to look at uh, when they look at their citizens. I, I don't have any particular hot take, takes there, but um, at this valuation, big tech like Tencent and Baba feels like a fat pitch across the plate. Now you're right. The, the 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 multiple expansion may never come because, you know, these risks exist. Or things go really south, you know, for for the US listings or the ADRs and I don't even know how all of that really plays out. That being said, I'm comfortable with them right now and a company like Tencent that is the super app and ingrained in every single Chinese citizen's life. Like they have 1.2 billion daily users. If you do the population on China, that's almost everyone. Uh, they're the largest gaming company in the world. They own over 700 businesses around the world. They own major stakes in businesses like Spotify, Snapchat, Tesla. And it is an absolute behemoth. I'm comfortable with the risks. I'm getting all kinds of questions about this. Tencent is a big position for me. I'm comfortable with the risks. And at this valuation, if I'm right, I'll remind you when Tencent traded at $68. <laughs> I'll, rem I'll be the first to remind people on this podcast that Tencent traded at $68. And maybe maybe shit hits the fan. If no, no other way to, 
to put this. That could happen. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not perfect. I'm never gonna get everything right, but I don't know, man. This feels way too cheap. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good argument. For me, it's more being aware of those risks. I'm definitely seeing some trends in the direction that I don't love from the CCP. And that's what I really wanted to highlight here. I own Tencent. I own also KWeb ETF, which has pretty much all the big tech uh, Chinese companies in there. It's not a huge por- uh, portion of my portfolio. I may add a tiny bit, but I will probably keep it a... You know, decent, but not a big portion of my portfolio because of some of the risk I I see in China. And the biggest thing for me is just the Chinese government can really act unilaterally for certain, well, if they want to change something or impose regulation. Whereas in the, the States, for example, or Canada, if you want to impose regulation, let's say in the States, you'll have to need, you'll need to have collaboration between both parties and we know how that can be difficult in the states especially right now and if there's an investigation it will go to court there might be some it might take several years so they're they're really very two different playing fields and i think that's probably the biggest risk in my mind and look it may end up being a great value play uh but there's definitely some some more risk and you just need to be aware of that yeah there there is there is like the price deserves to be trading lower because the risks have massively increased. Um, let's not kid ourselves. Okay, uh, my third takeaway, kind of surprise on the year, is the good old meme stocks and trading volumes. And we haven't talked about them on this podcast that much because it's just really not our style. I mean, there's if you want news about these meme stocks, you don't have to look very far on the internet. Uh, but I am surprised. I am honestly very surprised that meme stocks and trading volumes are still so high. I mean, during the height of the everyone stay at home order, sure. But the US is like fully back to normal now. And when I say I'm surprised meme stocks are so high, I mean, I'm surprised that the same meme stocks are so high. I did, I did expect, you know, the same crowd chasing bubbles to pile into new names you know whatever the new hot wall street bets pick of the day but it's still amc and gme it's still amc and gamestop amc is up over 2141 percent year to date and gamestop is well over a thousand percent year to date performance uh so I ex- I expected folks holding the bag on these to be absolutely wiped out. And it turns out if you just went to sleep, you, you, you actually keep making money. Um, this is very surprising to me. I don't, I don't know. When does it end, right? Like, I think AMC trades for like eight times sales or something. It's a, uh, it's a big for, growth for stock. A business, <laughs> for a, yeah, yeah. Like for a business that's in structural decline, terrible unit economics uh capital intensive like it's not a great business suffering from people you know switching to streaming uh you know an eight times sales multiple i better be seeing like 50 percent year over year sales growth or like a super wide moat high margin cloud stock (laughs) this is this is on this is unbelievable man yeah, you can even add like a, a Dogecoin to that as well, right? It's just, yeah. uh, it just makes no sense at all. We'll see where it ends. I mean, I just don't want to be held 
holding the bag when it's, it starts going down. So I'm, I'm just more... surprised that the people holding the bag aren't completely wiped yet. Like yeah. they keep making mm-hmm. money. I mean, same I, names. It's entertaining, at least from looking at the sidelines, and I'm more than happy just looking at that. Even if GME goes three, four, five x from here, who knows? I'm uh, just interested in seeing what happens there. Um, so my last one, uh, my last takeaway for the first six months of the year. I've talked about this before, uh, Canadian infrastructure movement. So there's been some activity in that space. Uh, BIP, so Brookfield Infrastructures uh, Partners, they offered to acquire Interpipeline. They're competing with Pambina Pipeline. So it started with Pambina. Um, well, it started with BIP offering a hostile takeover. Pambina came along and then offered a mostly stock um, offer to Interpipeline. And then BIP came back with a, uh, a better offer and had a significant component of cash. And then they made that all cash recently or however the shareholders want to decide. So it'll be interesting um, you know, if, to see if there's more coming up this year. Uh, there's a couple others of note, so CNR and CP competing for Kansas City Southern. Um, it looks like there's more and more support for Canadian National Rail for to make this acquisition. Um, they've had letters of support from the um, Kansas City uh, Business um, Association. Uh, they had tons of other support as well. I mean, ultimately, it will be up to the U.S. regulators to decide whether they allow that to go through or not. I certainly hope they do allow it because there is a pretty salty breakup fee, which CNR has had a lot of uh, taken a lot of flack for. The last one of note is TC Energy canceling the Keystone XL pipeline after years of legal battles and obstacles for the pipeline. Um, they're also that came out recently. They're also initiating a claim for fifteen billion dollars under NAFTA against the U.S. government because of their decision to cancel it in the U.S. Um, and the last thing with infrastructure that will be interesting to see is if we'll see new pipelines being built in the next, uh, let's say, five years. Because I don't see we'll I don't think we'll see a lot of them being constructed personally we may see some existing one that are deteriorating and that would be i have in mind the line three from enbridge here um, that needs to be replaced because it's causing environmental issues so we might see that but um, i don't think we'll see a lot of new pipelines get built that's just my 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 quick take on that yeah it's unfortunate um which you might be like, why, why is that unfortunate? Well, folks, I am an environmental engineer. I worked in energy for several years. And the unfortunate part of environmental control is the thing that governments decide to do to limit environmental impact usually result in actually more emissions. So when we think about pipelines, they are a net reduction in greenhouse gases. If we were to move all of this via rail and truck, and you know, rails like full capacity, if you were to take this excess capacity and move it via truck, you end up with more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so, you know, I, I get I get really salty when I see in financial markets poor ESG 
like, uh, you know, I see these funds that are ESG and it's just Facebook and Google's their number one holdings. It's just like, okay, here's an S and P 500 with a higher management fee that we saying is environmental sustainable, uh, for, for you folks. So I think of this in the same light where it's just like, yeah, it's the, it's the fluffy, oh yeah, look, we're good doing good for the world, but really scientifically does not, is not backed by any real science or real metrics or, you know, someone with a background that can poke holes in this stuff all day. I digress. Those are our six takeaways so far of the year. Um, okay. I have a section on optionality. If you read my top picks reports for members on Stratosphere, you'll see I talk about this word optionality a lot. Like 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 a lot, a lot. I pretty much talk about it in every business that we discuss. Now, optionality is by definition is a quality or description of being available to be chosen not obligatory. Now, as investors, we have lots of optionality in our portfolios. We have tons of investment opportunities, specific stocks, different investment strategies, asset allocation, the list goes on. However, oftentimes this leads to decision paralysis, which I hope we can talk later about on this podcast. But first, I want to discuss what I mean 99% of the time when I'm referring to optionality is when I'm talking about optionality within a business. Optionality for a company is their ability to expand their total addressable market by introducing new products, new services to new or existing markets. Optionality within a business has been a very common characteristic in stocks that win very big. Okay, so I think this is well understood with some examples. So let's give some of those. All right, for for a first example, Apple, that business we all know and love very well, has had tremendous optionality through their rise to this $2 trillion in market cap behemoth. And they've had optionality to monetize customers in new and more creative ways. Let's think of the service side of the business now, which makes up a significant portion of revenue and a lot of the margin, iCloud, App Store, Apple Music, Apple TV, and lots, lots more. Now, these high margin services they introduced didn't exist at one point. And and think of how much the business has changed, but they've had optionality of entering new verticals, new features, expanding their overall market opportunity. That's how they've gotten so big. Um, you know, they don't just do the personal computer anymore. The personal computer is a huge market, but think of all the optionality in expanding their total addressable market over time has become. All right. Now there's tons of technology examples of companies entering new markets, um, to their existing customers and winning and winning in a major way. The most classic example Amazon with Amazon Web Services. AWS is doing $50 billion in revenue right now. And at a 10x sales cloud multiple, which, by the way, is very normal in the stock market, maybe even on the low end, AWS is a $500 billion business 
on its own. If you, you know, like that's in, absolutely absurd. Uh, Google, you know, Google Maps, Google Cloud, Google Suite, the million other things they do, that wasn't part of the core search business. Look how they've entered those markets. Microsoft, you know, Microsoft Teams has taken, you know, the, the workplace environment by storm. Azure, their cloud business is an absolute behemoth. Those didn't exist. Now, these are dominant product, like, uh, products in their category. They're not just like a constituent. They are, they are the leaders in these products. And they didn't exist in the core business not so long ago. Now, let's think of some other examples. Spotify. The upside for Spotify is that they have optionality in concert distribution, live audio streaming, podcasting, exclusive content, um, both on podcasting and new music, to name a few. You know, those didn't exist when they decided in Sweden that we're going to make a, a streaming app. Uh, let's use a non-tech example. Coca-Cola. They've had the optionality to enter new drinks new markets organically and through acquisitions. Now, Coca-Cola kind of wraps up this whole concept here that we've seen in tech as well. What is the common theme to optionality here? It's distribution. Coca-Cola can serve drinks all over the world um, immediately after acquiring some brand because they have this insanely powerful distribution channel. They probably have the most impressive distribution channel of any physical product in the world and they have this supply chain and distribution competitive advantage so distribution is everything and this is also why big tech has been this winner take all scenario if google launches a new product they are the gatekeepers of the internet in the western world and can get it in front of eyeballs overnight you know, think of how big of an advantage that is for them to enter new markets and have this optionality when they have this distribution and not to mention the amount of cash and capital they, they are producing day in, day out to actually execute on some of these ideas. Um, optionality is something that I look at intensely and is a very common characteristics in in companies that go hundredfold in the old hundred baggers book. Yeah, yeah, well put. I mean, I'm just thinking when you mention a Apple, the good old uh, Apple. Um, what was it? The the music player? My God, I had the, the iPod. The iPod. There you go. The iPod. I remember the first one I had was so huge you could only like download a certain amount yeah like limited storage i think it was a couple of gigs. A thousand songs a thousand songs and then i would just get uh you know too lazy so i would just listen to the same songs over and oh over. Yeah, yeah yeah so things i think my changed. ipod had like 85 songs for like many years yeah there you go and it's like, like, you, you, <laughs> like one day you're feeling brain. an artist and you just re-listen to their uh to their Your high school album. brain can only listen to so much lincoln park yeah, yeah, for me, it was probably uh, Jay-Z over and over quite a few times. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. Now, let's talk about CPP. I've been getting some questions about that, so people asking a bit more uh, how it works, what, uh, you know, just to understand a bit more what it is because it's thrown out there quite a bit. So CPP, the Canada Pension Plan, was designed to offer Canadians a portion of their income when they retire 
with a cap. So there is a cap to the amount that you can receive. It is a government-sponsored defined benefit pension plan that is indexed to the CPI. CPP is taxable income when you start receiving it. So in terms of contribution rates, so the contribution rates in 2021 were 10.9%, 2022, 11.4%, 2023, 11.9%. Bear in mind that this is shared between yourself and your employer. If you're um, employed, if you're self-employed, then um, there is a tax deductible portion. So you're responsible for the whole rate if you're self-employed, but you can tax deduct um, the other portion. So how do payment works? Uh, payments are dependent on the following factor, the age you decide to start your pension, how much and for how long you contributed to CPP, your average earnings throughout your working life, and payments are capped for higher earners like I mentioned. The formula is based on the number of contributory months and CM since you turn 18 and will automatically remove up to eight years of what they call dropout years where you had the lowest salary during those contributing years so obviously people tend to have hiring higher earner high higher earning years and sorry i'm missing my words a little bit we're recording quite early this morning so people can tend to have their highest earning years later we're, in we're life. getting you all the words that are hard to pronounce with your Exactly. An 8.30 a.m. recording. It's not easy. <laughs> so those highest earning years will tend to come when people are older, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s. So you're removing the ones where you may have been working that minimum wage job when you were younger, for example. So they'll automatically remove those eight years. This maximum someone can receive in 2021, age 65. So if you're starting at the base age, is... Tw uh, 1203.75 however the average monthly amount in 2021 was 619.44 so roughly half that so what happens if you start payments before age 65 so you can actually start the payments as early as age 60 so your payments will be reduced by 0.6 percent for each month in which you start collecting cpp before age 65 so that means if you wanted to start at age 60, the minimum age requirement, your reduction will be 5 times 12, so 60 months times 0.6. So that's a 36% reduction to your benefit. The reasoning is very simple, very similar to defined benefit pension plan. If you have one with your employer, for example, the earlier you start to collect, the longer you'll typically start you'll collect the pension so the pension plan in order to make sure they're properly funded they put a reduction on that to essentially reduce the risk um, so that's the reason there's a reduction so now the opposite of that if you start your payments after age 65 then your payments actually will increase by 0.7 percent for each month that you delay taking cpp the latest you can start is age 70 and this means that if you start at age 68, for example, you'll get 36 months. So 36 months later, three years, obviously, times 0.7%. So that's a 25.2% increase. So that can be pretty significant. Um, if people are wondering how can they know what their benefits will be, so I will put a link that describes how the actual formula works. It's a quite a long article to figure that out. But 
The good news is you don't have to do the calculations yourself. You can just go to your My Service Canada account and get an estimate of your CPP retirement benefits. I would mention to anyone that's not close to retiring to be very careful. Uh, for example, say you're 45 years old, you go and you want an estimate. It won't be accurate because it will not have some of your best earning years. So it'll be very misleading. So I would you know, take it with a grain of salt if you're going to do that and you're, let's say, 5, 10, 15 years away from actually retiring. The main question that I can see people sending in me DMs or reaching out to me is, should, should I take CPP early? Should I take it at age 65 or should I delay it? So there's not really an answer that I can give you for that, but here are some things that you can think about that are very dependent on your own personal situation. What does your health look like when you retire? So are you healthy? And what are your typical health risk factors, longevity, um, your, you know, your parents, your family, how long have they lived and so on? So you do, do you think you'll still be healthy well into your 70s, 80s? That can have an impact on when to start to collect CPP. How much other retirement income do you have? Do you have a defined benefit pension? Do you have RSPs or a defined contribution pensions, for example? Maybe you can afford delaying a few years your CPP and getting that extra income because you get the increased benefits because you have other sources of income. But if you don't have a civic significant RSP, DC pension, uh, TFSA, obviously, DP pension, then maybe it makes more sense starting a bit early. It really depends on your own personal financial situation and ultimately what you intend on doing on your retirement. Because a lot of people, when they're younger, they'll, for example, travel more, maybe play more golf, like I'm sure Braden will do when he's retired. Um, so I don't a lot know of... how I can play more golf. That's the, <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah, but they're just things, right? If you're well into your late 70s and 80s, you may still be healthy, but you might not be able to do some of those things just because of certain physical limitations, for example. So these are all things to, to keep in mind when you're looking to decide to start CPP. I know it's uh, it's not, it's just a general overview. I could have gone way more into detail with CPP, but this just a, a good way for you to, to wrap your head around if you're, uh, you're looking into that. Yeah, well put. So maybe if, if Simon's correct, I can start golfing twice <laughs> per day upon retirement. If your body can handle it. <laughs> oh, I'll be, I'll be fit. Don't worry. Don't worry. All right, last segment of today's show. I'm going to do something on decision paralysis. So when we go back to the thing I was talking about earlier, which is optionality, we also ourselves as investors have optionality when managing your own portfolio. I guess the problem is perhaps too much optionality. Decision paralysis occurs when we select from options that are difficult to compare. Simply stated, decision paralysis can be described as having a tough time choosing between action A or B, and we end up picking action C or doing nothing at all. So in investing, there are so many options, so many different stocks, so many different allocation strategies, so many different assets. How do I pick them? So it's a difficult problem out of the gate. So if you're struggling with this, it's a difficult problem. 
This is what makes investing nuanced and difficult. But overall, it's a good problem to have. Options are good. Now, the next fact of the matter is that we can't own every stock. And if you want to just own every stock, buy an index ETF, call it a day, sleep just fine at night. But if you want to pick great businesses, you're going to be presented with all kinds of opportunities. You can't take, you can take some of them when they come across your plate, you know, that fat pitch analogy, but you don't have to take all of them. As Warren Buffett said, there are no called strikes in investing, so you don't always have to be making moves. You can dollar cost average the companies you know well, you have high conviction for their success in the future. Um, So I was speaking with my newest employee at Stratosphere, Adrian, who is absolutely killing it, by the way. Uh, for he's a great analyst for Stratosphere members. He writes some awesome reports. He's doing one on Amazon right now, and we're discussing the business uh, over a, over a Slack discussion. And we were just thinking about Amazon Web Services, and it's like, wow, Amazon Web Services this decade, like mid decade, can easily be hit a hundred billion dollars in revenue. Now at that ten x high margin cloud SaaS business we were talking about. You're talking about 10x revs and you have a trillion dollar company this decade. Like like quite easily. Which is like mind boggling to think about Amazon and some of parts when you have a company with a segment that is probably gonna hit a hundred billion dollars this decade. Uh well it's it's actually crazy to think about that some of parts that one segment could be worth a trillion dollars. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm probably an idiot. Like I'm typing this on Slack. I'm like, I'm an idiot. I don't own it. And he's like, man, you've been, you've been crushing it. You've been absolutely crushing the index for stuff. I feel really stupid for not owning too. Like constellation software, for instance, probably the nicest looking chart on the history of the TSX. And I was like, man, you're right. You know what? You can't own everything. And decision paralysis will eat you alive because you got to just make the decisions on things you have high conviction in, make sense to you, match your personality, and dollar cost average over years. And if an opportunity arises, like say I, I, I think, wow, I'm really an idiot for not owning Amazon, and that opportunity arises, then I'll take it. But if you are looking at opportunities every single day, you're probably going to overtrade. You're going to suffer from decision paralysis. You're going to fall for shiny object syndrome. Next thing you know, you're going to have 50 stocks in your portfolio. Um, when realistically, the best ideas you own, you the best ideas out there might be things you already own. That's one of the best advice I was ever given to me. Um, when I sat down with Barry Schwartz, who's a uh, chief investment officer in, in Toronto, I sat down with him. He said, the best idea you have is one you probably already own. And you know what? That's probably true. Um, that's probably true. Not, that, that's not to say there's not a stock out there that's going to 10x in the next five years and you, you should have owned it. That might be true. But that's really impossible pr- to predict Um, And you can do exceptionally well following a strategy that you're going to be able to repeat year after year, decade after decade, however long your investment horizon is, 
is there's a million ways to do well. You just got to do the one that you can sustainably repeat and keep keep going at. And that's going to be the one that works the best for you. Um, so if you're having decision paralysis and you're like, what are the best stocks I should buy? Well, don't worry. I got you covered. We rank our best ideas in Stratosphere. If you go to getstockmarket.com, you can find them there or go to stratosphereinvesting.com. It's free to sign up. No credit card. All these other services, they want you to launch your credit card in there, pay a bunch of money just to see this stuff. Try it out for free. See if you like it or not. Um, Okay, Simon, this was uh, our earliest morning recording yet. Yeah. And we crushed it. I just want you, I just want everyone on this podcast to know we started this note segment probably what like a couple days ago last year oh yeah yeah the the whole document okay the document there is 137 pages of notes here (laughs) that is crazy yeah i never uh we just keep adding to it i never keep track of uh what page we're on but yeah it's gonna be like page 250 by the end of this year oh yeah so the the takeaway is that we are working hard for you we appreciate you. You might be noticing, yeah, we're monetizing the podcast a little bit because we absolutely put in a lot of effort into this stuff. And we appreciate that you guys recognize that and keep listening. So thank you so much. Yeah, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, and I wanted to add, so we finished our uh, poll that we did a few weeks. I think it was uh, yeah. about a week ago. So we have uh, two winners. I feel like I know which one I'll do and which one Braden will do. So I think I'll probably uh, be the one doing uh, Algonquin Power and Braden uh, probably Lightspeed. What do you think about that? Well, so let's, <laughs> I guess, I guess, like, let's clarify, like, my text message disdain is that I'm like, okay, if you put Algonquin Power up there, these Canadians love their dividends, and this thing pays a juicy yield. We're gonna be, re- we're gonna be doing it. And Algonquin is, by the way, probably one of the best dividend growers on the TSX. Like it is a rock solid utility. They pay a fat yield. They raise it like fifteen percent a year. It's a, it's a great business. I guess what I was saying is it's just a utility. It's so boring. Like it put everyone on the podcast to sleep. But that's why we put but, I put top two when I I put the poll yeah. out, so that way we'll have one. Uh, I knew we would have one that'd be more of a growth company. So Lightspeed will be will be the other one. So uh, in the upcoming episodes, uh, it really depends on what comes out. If there's any, obviously we'll mention news sometimes too. But uh, we'll be doing it. Uh, just stay tuned. I'm not sure which episode, but we'll be doing both of them. And thank you for everyone who voted. And uh, like Braden said, everyone loves their, uh, Canadians love their dividends. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like a drug for them. Especially like, I mean, you know, I, you could do a lot worse. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I, like, you could do a lot worse. Uh, you know, there's so many, like I said, there's so many different investing strategies. You'll get decision paralysis thinking about all of them. Um, but I guess one main takeaway is just congratulate yourself for even managing your own portfolio like you are in the minority of people that are even thinking about this stuff let alone managing their own portfolio so give yourself a pat on the back think about you know yeah you could have made some mistakes yeah i might not be doing the best investment strategy yeah i might be new you are in the minority. You should be proud of yourself for managing your own portfolio in the first place because most people aren't thinking about this stuff. 
and most people aren't managing their own portfolio. So congratulations. That does it for this week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Follow us on Twitter at CDN underscore investing. Peace. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.